Hey, it's Cam. I am happy you're here. I'm grateful that you're here. And I hope that you can take something away from today's podcast. Something truly helpful, integrative. And what we're going to be discussing today is critically underlooked by most of society and most of medicine, most of everything. It's where everything starts and ends. It is the most critical aspect of our being, is the breath. And this story begins much like any other, with a big bang. And from this big bang were born gases. And these primordial gases, largely hydrogen and helium, proceeded to clump together as they floated through nothingness, maybe out of loneliness, maybe out of curiosity, but likely out of some universal governing law that negates the concept of free will if looked upon by people that know what they're looking upon. Alas, I do not know what I'm looking upon when I see an image of a galaxy. In fact, I don't truly see much of what I see with my eyes. There's too much subjective wiring between the outside and inside to be sure of anything that's coming in. Because when I see, I try and understand. But when I breathe, I become. And I'm getting ahead of myself as per usual. There's much more to the breath than connecting with the universal source, which makes sense. It's something you don't leave your house without. You don't sit in traffic without it. You don't do anything without your breath. But most of us are not using it to our potential. So today we discuss the breath where it comes from, how it works, and how we can use it to immediately and consistently change and alter our state of being so that we may enrich our daily lives. And because I don't have an intro song yet, I'm going to play Super Secret Cosmo. Like Take it away, my friend. started everybody. So, the composition of gas in any environment shapes its state. It morphs the evolutionary process of all that resides within that sphere. An Earth's atmosphere is composed of about 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, 0.9% argon, and 0.1% of some other stuff. Earth is a nice place to be. Jupiter's atmosphere is about 90% hydrogen, 10% helium, with trace amounts of methane and ammonia. And Jupiter is fucked. So, it stands to reason that the composition of gases within our bodies modulate our physiological and psychological states. The key organs to breathing are the heart, the diaphragm, the brain, and the lungs. And within the brain, we do have a region called the pre-Botzinger complex, which is a, a bundle of neurons that connect to motor neurons in the intercostals and diaphragms. And this pre-Botzinger complex initiates each breath. And when you inhale, you contract the diaphragm and pull it down, which expands the lungs. This opens up the chest cavity, expands the heart, resulting in slower blood flow. This slower blood flow results in your brain sending a message to your heart to speed things up, because homeostasis. And when you exhale, the diaphragm moves up, contracting the chest cavity, compressing the heart, speeding up blood flow, resulting in the brain sending a heart, the heart a message to slow things down. And by default, we are diaphragmatic breathers, particularly when we need to increase ventilation. 
And you'll notice that at rest, exhaling is passive. And there is a bi-directionality to breathing and your emotional state. Your emotional state can influence breathing, and breathing influences your emotional state. And the most unique thing about this process is that when you breathe, you can consciously change that breath, change the signals, and change your internal state. And this is why exhalations, specifically longer exhalations, are preferred for deep breathing patterns and relaxation. Because when you exhale, your heart shrinks, your blood flow speeds up, your brain sends a signal to slow down your blood flow. And this is where relaxation happens. A prolonged exhalation hacks the communication between your heart and your brain via the vagus nerve, and your blood flow slows down, signaling to your body that you are safe, activating the parasympathetic nervous system, allowing for digestion, repair, and rest. Much of the problem that we face today, though, is the distinction between mouth breathing and nose breathing. And this is important. You need to remember this if you haven't heard this before. The volume of the nose and sinus cavity is about the volume of your fist, or the size of a billiard ball. And your nose is the first line of defense. The air coming in through the nose is slowed down, filtered, and humidified so that by the time it gets to your lungs, absorbing the oxygen is easier. And as this air flows in, the nose produces nitric oxide, and this nitric oxide serves as a vasodilator, playing a vital role in oxygen delivery whilst battling off viruses, bacteria, and other pathogens. When we breathe through the nose, 20% more oxygen is delivered to the lungs. Now, during normal breathing, the abdomen gently expands and contracts with each inhalation and exhalation. There is no effort involved, the breath is silent, regular, and most importantly, through the nose. Abnormal breathing, or mouth breathing, on the other hand, is often faster than normal, audible, punctuated by sighs, and involves visible movements of the upper chest. This type of breathing is normally only seen when a person is under stress, but for those who habitually breathe through their mouths, the negative side effects of stress and overbreathing become chronic. Habitual mouth breathing has serious implications on an individual's lifelong health, including the development of facial structures. And this is where we dive into the evolutionary effects or devolutionary effects of industrialization and how this has impacted our breathing patterns. Anthropological studies have shown that the food industrialization coincides with smaller mouths, jaws, and narrowed airways. In ancient skulls older than 500 years old, teeth are perfectly straight because the mouth was wider and the jaws were more powerful. But in our modern era with industrialized food, the shape of our mouth has become smaller, teeth are crooked, and airways are more narrow. About 25-50% to 50 of the population habitually breathes through their mouths. And mouth breathing can, very quickly, and almost certainly, have severe consequences on your physiology. Neurological degeneration, respiratory problems, snoring, sleep apnea, metabolic disorders, asthma, anxiety, and a host of psychological manifestations of these processes. Now, it is well documented that mouth-breathing adults are more likely to experience sleep-disordered breathing, fatigue, decreased productivity, and poor quality of life than those who nasal breathe. And in children, these harmful effects are amplified since it is during these formative years that breathing mode helps to shape the orofacial structures and airways. And according to the National Sleep Foundation, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD, is linked to a variety of sleep problems. Children and adults behave differently as a result of sleepiness. Adults usually become sluggish and tired, while children tend to overcompensate and speed up. For this reason, sleep deprivation is sometimes confused with ADHD in children, resulting in that moodiness, emotional explosivity, emotional explosiveness, emotional explosiveness, and or aggressiveness. And most of the problem here is that when we treat individuals for these conditions and symptoms, we treat them as separate issues, not the core issue of how we breathe. Like anything else in your body, if you don't use it, you lose it. The less you use your nose, the less you'll be able to use your nose, and the breathing tissues within it literally close up. 
And for those of you with congestion, such as myself, maybe as a result of allergic rhinitis, treatments often include trigger avoidance, decongestants, corticosteroids, or allergy shots. And whilst these can certainly be of help, specifically pseudoephedrine, the individual tends to become accustomed to breathing through their mouth, a habit that can linger after decongestion has occurred. And for this, I recommend the Buteyko method. The Buteyko method, otherwise known as the control pause, is done by taking a large inhalation, followed by an exhalation, followed by a breath hold while holding the nose closed. While holding the breath, you rotate the head slowly in each direction. And then once your body demands that you breathe again, you unblock your nose and slowly sip air through the nasal passageway. Keep repeating this process until you are breathing easy, because a lot of this congestion isn't necessarily phlegm, it's actually inflammation. And when we're not breathing through our nose, we lack the nitric oxide that results in that nasal anti-inflammation. And it is a common myth that the more we breathe, the more air we get. In reality, most of us are actually breathing too much. 75% of the oxygen we take in, we breathe directly back out. And when we breathe too much, we're not gaining oxygen, but we're actually making it harder for the body to offload oxygen into our tissues, muscles, and organs. Breathing less and more deeply allows us to optimize each breath as much as possible. And this is done naturally through nasal breathing. The need for increased breath during exercise is not necessarily dictated by a need for oxygen, but due to increased carbon dioxide levels. And carbon dioxide is not just a waste product. We need the balance between carbon dioxide and oxygen to function. And much of fitness is dictated by your tolerance to that carbon dioxide. Conversely, people with asthma or high levels of anxiety tend to have an extremely low threshold for carbon dioxide. This can result in the body's chemoreceptors initiating a fear response cascade, which in turn increases the shallowness of breath. Now, for those of you that are just getting started with breath work and meditation, the easiest breath to follow, if you're just trying to get aligned and get in touch with the, the processes behind it, is a six-second inhale followed by a six-second exhale. Try it now with me. Inhale. Exhale. Continue this process. And one of the reasons that breathwork can be so powerful for meditation, particularly for those of you with ADHD or a wandering mind, is because when you are focusing on the breath and you're counting your cycles and you're focusing on your posture and your rhythm, there is not a lot of extra room for superfluous thought. You are creating trust between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. You are, as the conscious being, demanding that your subconscious aligns itself with your instructions. And you will get distracted, and you will get lost, and that's all part of it. So when you realize that you followed your thought down a rabbit hole, bring it back to the breath. And you keep doing this repeatedly, over and over and over again, and then you'll find eventually that subconscious mind listens to you when you tell it what to do. It will bend to your will. You just have to train it so. Now, in terms of breathwork for anxiety, and I'm talking about acute anxiety when you need relief now, when you need to recalibrate in an instant, we do the physiological sigh, which is two short inhales through the nose, a brief pause in between each inhalation, followed by an extended exhalation. Two rapid inhalations with a brief pause in between, followed by an extended exhalation. And you keep repeating this, and you will find that your heart rate slows down, and as your heart rate slows down, the pace of your thoughts also slows down. This is where we gain control. 
breathing is the one tool that we can use to regulate all of the other systems in our body. It is the only autonomic function that we have direct control over. And the results of this are quite profound. Now, I haven't gotten into things like uh, DMT breathing, holotropic breathing, stramonic breathing, Wim Hof, alkaline breathing, tumo breathing. Those are all going to be individual podcasts followed by guided breathwork sessions. For now, I just really wanted to drive home some of the concepts behind how we breathe and how to breathe correctly because it is something that you can change today that has a dramatic effect on your mood, your motivation, your state of mind, and your overall quality of life and health. Now let's get on to some questions. Fee Aura asks, do you have a set time to meditate? I personally do not, and that's because I find that there are different times of day that uh, have different practicalities around why I meditate. I will try and get a meditation in the morning, but I don't get stressed out if I do not, because uh, whilst I used to meditate as soon as I woke up, I find that a little bit of clarity and energy and wakefulness actually assists my meditation. My mind's a little bit sharper. It's more likely to listen to my commands. Whereas if I get up directly from bed and go straight into a meditation, I'm just a little bit hazy. And I like to use that time for journaling and movement instead. Gur Ra asks, because there are so many ways, would it be too bold to say that there's no wrong way to meditate? I don't think that's bold at all. I don't think that's wrong. I think that there are many ways to meditate and it's about finding ways to meditate that resonate with you. And in order to do that, you just got to kiss a bunch of frogs until you find one that speaks to you. Um, personally, I like to transition into my meditation with deliberate breath work. I find that using breath work, I can get into a flow state a little bit easier because during those first 10 minutes when your mind is really just kind of scattered and all over the place, falling into a deliberate breathwork regimen uh, forces my mind to, to listen to me. And then from there, I might cycle into a more um, natural, organic pace of breathing. But meditation is any time where your conscious mind and your subconscious mind are attempting to be aligned. It's any time you are engaging in intentional non-thinking, and it's any time you are being automated in some kind of flow state. So people can get into this state when they're riding motorcycles, when they're fly fishing, when they're driving a car, when they're going for a walk, when they're painting, when they're playing music, or when they're sitting cross-legged and looking up at the sky. So there are no wrong ways to meditate. There are just different ways to meditate. AOC asks, is my complete focus while exercising a form of meditation? I think so. Absolutely. If you are solely focused on the one task and you can get into a flow state, there are meditative aspects that come from that. Whilst you're not engaging in intentional non-thinking, you can still certainly get some of the meditative benefits from that. I would say that if you are relying on exercise as your only form of meditation, then you should certainly try out some more passive styles of meditation because something about uh, you know exercising, you are really focused on what's going on in front of you, what's going on with your body, and that certainly lends itself to a certain type of awareness. But when you think about, air quotes, enlightenment and universal consciousness and awareness, it's about experiencing everything that this moment has to offer. And when you're exercising, you're very much focused on everything that exercise has to offer. Amanda Karanati asks, when I practice breath work, it sometimes triggers anxiety and panicked feelings. What is the root cause and your suggestion? So when we are doing breath work, specifically in the early days of breath work, you're going to have a very low tolerance to CO2, carbon dioxide. 
And this low tolerance of CO2 is it's something that your body uses to determine what kind of state it's in. And when you have high levels of CO2 in your body, say you're trying to practice these breath holds, it's literally signaling to your brain that you are in a state of extreme stress and we need to do something about it. And that triggers the anxiety cascade, increasing chemicals like norepinephrine and adrenaline, cortisol, glutamate. These can all increase that, uh, that panicky feeling. So what I would do is surrender to that, accept that, see what kind of thoughts arise from that anxiety and understand that it is a transient effect that will dissipate. Um, if you try and exclude it, it will become stronger. So don't be afraid of it. Just observe it say, oh, this is interesting that these, uh, these anxious feelings are coming up and you can observe what kind of thoughts are manifested from those feelings because it all starts with a feeling and then manifests as a thought. Uh, I would try some different styles of breath work. Maybe you're doing too many breath holds. Uh, I would focus on maybe the, uh, some, some simple box breathing, like five seconds in, five seconds hold, five seconds out, five seconds hold, so that you have a nice mix between O2 and CO2. And if you ever get to a point where you're feeling extremely uncomfortable or you're lightheaded and you feel like something's wrong, bring yourself out of it, return to a normal state of breathing, ground yourself, and move through it again. It's Madam T asks, how do you stop the constant thoughts and how do you breathe from your tummy? To breathe from your tummy... I like to imagine that my diaphragm right below my sternum is like a syringe. And when I breathe in, it's a syringe pulling it down to the bottom of my belly towards my groin. And then when I exhale, that syringe is being released and pushed up again. This might be my nursing background coming into play, but I find that the syringe pulling from the bottom into your belly, you want to feel the front of your belly expand. You want to feel the back of your uh, ribs expand and the, the side walls of your chest expand as well. So you want that omnidirectional expansion from the center outwards and you'll feel that, uh, that pressure in that kind of that spherical circumference. And then from there, you can bring it up into your chest if you want to do those large inhalations and exhalations, such as those involved in um, alkaline breathing or Wim Hof breathing, Tumo breathing. And then how do I stop the constant thoughts? You don't. You don't actively stop the constant thoughts when you are meditating. What you do is practice the role of the observer, become aware of those thoughts, um, remind your brain, remind your subconscious when you need to that these thoughts are okay, that they're not you, and you will find that over time, those thoughts will begin to be quieter because you're not giving them the same power. If you're focusing on stopping the constant thoughts, all you do is increase them. Because now you are no longer engaging in intentional non-thinking meditation. Now you are doing a directive style of meditation where you are trying to force something. So meditation is not about stopping anything. It's just about being, sitting, breathing, becoming aware of those thoughts. And the more you do that, the more you can slip into that awareness and the less those thoughts will bother you. Ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-ro-
drop that thought into the stream of all the others. And you just keep doing that repetitively. Really, it's a, it's a game of repetition. Um, meditation does not happen overnight. And the more we seek, the less we find, and the more we try and stop, the greater we give power to. Um, Sri Shalani asks, do you think music or specific sound frequency helps with meditation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think that it helps, then it will help. Um, personally, I, I love to use binaural beats. I love to use certain frequencies to slip into a certain state. There are many different types of meditation that I practice, some active, some passive. Um, I will quite often use meditation deliberately for business. If I've come to a bit of a crossroads and I lack a bit of clarity and I just want to know what to do not next, where to go next, I will sit down and I will repeat myself a little mantra and I will say, right now you are at peace. I am aligning with my highest self. I am merging with my highest self. My highest self guides me unfailingly. I am my highest self. And I give that to my subconscious and then I retract and then I sit in the position of the observer and see if any ideas come up. I'm not looking for ideas. I'm waiting for them to arise if they do without expectation because if I go into a meditation expecting to get ideas, expecting to find some kind of brilliance, then you are going to get farther away from the truth that you seek. But absolutely, music, frequencies, binaural beats, it can be very, very handy to have your um, a focal point for your mind to, to sit on. Um, specifically, om chants. I like to get into an om chant and I'll time my breath with that. Um, interesting thing about the om, when you do om, that vibration in your nasal passageway actually stimulates the release of nitric oxide, which is that vasodilator, which allows greater oxygen to be delivered to your lungs, which can enhance the overall experience. So that's a key concept for today, breathing through your nose. Laura Delescu asks, how can I make meditation a habit and when is the best time to meditate, morning or evening? To make meditation a habit, you have to approach it like any other habit. Slowly, simply, making it easy before you make it hard. If you go straight to wanting to meditate an hour a day or even half an hour a day, you are setting yourself up for a very challenging thing to maintain. If you would like to create meditation into a habit, decide that you will meditate once a day for the next seven days for five minutes, 10 minutes. And what you're going to do is set a timer. You will not get up until that timer goes off. And you'll find that most of the time you're just sitting there thinking with your eyes closed. And that's okay. That's part of the game. But when you do that, when you avoid the impulse to get up and go do something else, so when you avoid all of those little thoughts that your brain says, hey, you know, you can just open your phone right now. Oh, you could go reply to that email. Oh, you should get some of that work done. You're saying, no, we are sitting. And your subconscious learns that you are the one in control. You are the master in this situation. So to, to make meditation a habit, tell yourself that you're going to do this. Commit to it. Follow through for you, not for anybody else. Set that timer. Do not get up until that timer goes off. Focus on your breath. Keep repeating this process. When it comes to finding the best time to meditate, again, that just comes down to you, what you're seeking from it. It's great to meditate at the beginning of the day because that tends to wipe the slate clean. If you don't have something that uh, acts as a little bit of a bookmark between days, then you wake up and you carry all of yesterday's bullshit into today. Whereas when you meditate, you have a moment to wipe the slate clean, close all of the tabs, and start with a fresh browser. And then coming out of that meditation, you can set an intention for your day. 
personally, I really like to meditate uh, on my lunch break. So I meditate usually twice a day. Um, I'm lucky enough to be able to work from home and I have zero um, external accountability focusing on, you know, what I need to do and when. It's a blessing and a curse. But I like to meditate around my lunch break. I find that it helps me to transition into the latter half of my day because usually I focus on more intensive stuff in the mornings, um, writing, communications, and then in the evening it's more creative strategization. strategization. And then in the evenings I tend to... um, I tend to meditate again about 6 p.m., sometime before dinner, just as a way to recalibrate, recenter, so that I can move on to my next day. So every time you meditate, you're closing tabs, you're gaining clarity, you're gaining peace, and that's how we cultivate it within the perpetual chaos of the universe. Find a time that works for you. Try it out. Um, Yusef SB asks, what is a common breathing technique to fall into meditation? I always find myself lost for choices. My friend, same here. I get lost for choice too. There's so many different types of, uh, of breath work that it can be difficult to pick one. But personally, I like to start things off with breath of fire. So rapid inhalations and exhalations through the nose. I'll do about 60 to 90 repetitions of that. I usually count my breaths in, in 30, uh, 30 breath cycles. So I might do 90 breath of fire. And then from there, I will transition into uh, either tumo breathing, um, like a box style tumo breathing, which is For me, 10 seconds in, 10 seconds hold, 10 seconds out, 10 seconds hold, or I will do some Wim Hof breathing, which is the large inhalation followed by the full exhalation. Do that about 30, 40, 50 times, depending on how I'm feeling. Transition into an extended breath hold on exhalation, as long as I can, followed by an extended breath hold upon inhalation. But it's just about trying things out, seeing what suits you. A lot of the power of breath work doesn't necessarily come from sustaining the same type of breathwork pattern, but from merging into different forms of breathwork within the same session and the physiological changes that can occur from those different gas exchanges. George Noel asks, I like to meditate after smoking. I find I can neutralize wild thoughts easier. Why is this? That's a great question. Personally, I, uh, I like to indulge in a little bit of THC when I meditate, not all the time, just sometimes. And I find the same thing. I have greater power over those, uh, uh, redirection back to the breath. And part of this reason is that when THC is introduced, what this does is it actually increases prefrontal cortex activity while decreasing amygdala activity. So imagine your amygdala and your prefrontal cortex as um, a horse and a cart. The prefrontal cortex is the, uh, the guy with the reins on the horse, on the cart. And the amygdala are the horses. And so that's your fear center, the one that just wants to run wild. And it's the prefrontal cortex's job to hold the reins. But in the case of anxiety, in the case of chronic disease, we find that there's decreased activity in the prefrontal cortex and increased activity in the amygdala. And so that increased activity in the amygdala is firing off excitatory neurochemicals, neurotransmitters, and neuromodulators, catecholines. And what this does is it sends those signals straight to the prefrontal cortex, which then introduces thoughts in line with those chemicals. Whereas when you introduce THC, amygdala activity slows down and prefrontal cortex activity increases. So that prefrontal cortex has a greater ability to tell the amygdala that things are okay. We don't need to be thinking about that right now. Thank you for the suggestion, but I'm good. And Tamika Edsall asks, anytime I've ever tried meditation, I genuinely can't stop my mind from wandering. That's good. That's what minds do. And we're not here to stop the mind from wandering. We're just here to notice when it is wandering. So 
that's a good sign. It means that you're on the right track. Um, as you continue to meditate, you'll find that you have a greater capacity to bring your attention back to the breath or bring your attention back to the birds, to the sounds, to the feeling of the air on your skin, to the feeling of your clothes on your body, whatever it might be. It's about attention. And so we find that when our thoughts tend to wander, our attention just kind of gets dragged away with it. But over time, meditation is really about training attention so that you can deliberately use it in the way that you want to use it. Keep practicing. Keep going. I mean, even yesterday, I sat down to meditate for maybe 30, 35 minutes. And I think the entire time I just sat there with my eyes closed thinking. I came away with some great ideas, which is why when it happens, when my mind is really overactive, I just surrender to it and say, all right, this is the type of meditation we're doing today. We're just going to cruise and see what kind of insights we might glean from this. Whereas other times I might be more focused on returning my attention back to the breath and kind of uh, just observing those thoughts peripherally. But overall, just surrender to it. Be okay. Understand that those racing thoughts, that's the monkey mind doing its job. Your brain works 24-7. That subconscious mind never, ever rests. It has a massive job to do. And it's not going to stop just because you stop and be still. But when you meditate, when you do that, even if you're just sitting there thinking with your eyes closed, you are at bare minimum training your attention and exerting more control over that subconscious mind so that in regular day-to-day life, it is more likely to listen to you. Now, I think that wraps up this podcast for the day. Thank you all for coming. I love you, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye. I feel like some days I'd rather fight with silver my gorillas Tell my days are hella things that I know are not what I'm about Cause I feel afraid when I start choosing healthier endeavors Better for me